Hello, this is an HMP Governance Lab podcast, and I'm Scott Greer, here to talk to you today about Larry Bartels, probably one of the most empirically and theoretically influential political scientists in early 21st century America, and influential mainly because of the finding in this book. Now, I'm going to talk you through how Bartels proceeds and the implications that our political elites who do read political science drew from it and how it's affected their behavior in interesting and sometimes unpredictable ways. We'll start with Bartels' basic unit of analysis. Bartels compares presidencies. Now, in a sense, this is important because what we want to know about is presidencies. He wants to know what different presidents could and did do. But it does create a problem that devils the book, and he's a very good methodologist, but he's still got the problem, which is that there aren't that many presidencies, and there aren't that many modern presidencies. Knowing about life under James K. Polk or you know James Monroe is not that interesting because there's no data, and it was a fundamentally not comparable country. So even if you start somewhere around the birth of anything like modern opinion polling, which is Truman at the earliest, you still have very limited numbers to work with, right? We're going to have to have another 30 or so presidents before you have anything approaching conventional statistical power. As I said, he's a good methodologist, but he's got this basic problem that there aren't that many of the things he wants to compare, and everything else that has changed since World War II is potentially a uh, confounding factor. Now, in comparing the presidencies, he comes up with an astonishing graphic, and it shows income growth arranged by decile under Democratic and Republican presidents since effectively World War II, which is when modern economic statistics became available. And what he finds is that the lines don't cross. Everybody has higher income growth over the course of a Democratic presidency. Subsequent work, which draws on tax returns because that's the only data fine-grained enough to find fewer than 1% of the population, has found that the super-rich, sort of the upper half of the, one, of the top 1% of the income distribution, do do significantly better under Republicans. And that's true even when you don't pay attention to the enormous tax cut they got under Donald Trump. But still, that leaves us with the basic issue that you have to look really hard to find any category of Americans— who had higher income growth under a Republican than under a Democratic president. Now, this leads him to a really big question, which is pretty simply, why does anybody vote for Republicans? If you have a higher household income, if you make more money, if you have a better standard of living under Democrats, then why do people ever vote to throw Democrats out? And why would people vote to reelect Republicans who have delivered a lower standard of living than the Democratic comparator? Another way to put it is if this didn't work for Republicans, they would change their views. So how is it that Republicans have discovered an electoral formula to deliver worse economic performance where it really counts, which is voters' household income growth, and still win about half the presidential elections? Now, there's a couple of questions that you might ask. One of them is, how do you see this effect? How could presidencies have such a strong effect? And note the one-year lag term that, so he attributes 2021 electoral performance to 2020, and he'll attribute 2025 to 2024. So that captures the fact that there's automatically a lag in both fiscal, that's taxing and spending, monetary, and overall economic policy. There's a couple of answers. One is monetary policy, 
essentially the actions of the Federal Reserve, which will frequently contribute to a greater amount of economic growth, easier credit, and so forth under Republicans. That maps onto a lot of people in business who are Republicans, and we all know that your party identity frequently will affect your understanding of the economy. There's a very strong effect that when a Democrat is in power, Democrats think the economy is better, and when Republicans are in power, Republicans think the economy is better, even if it's the same economy that it was yesterday before the presidential transition. Another one is, of course, fiscal policy. Government spending is really big and can shape entire sectors of the economy. These seem to be the biggest ones, right? Business confidence, consumer confidence, which isn't the same thing as the confidence of business, fiscal policy, and monetary policy by the Federal Reserve. And they all interact with each other. The other one, of course, is the Republicans have actually won one majority in a presidential election in the 21st century, in the election of 2004. So bear in mind throughout this conversation that Bartels's target is overall presidential votes for or against the incumbent party. The fact that the Democrats have to win a significant majority of the popular vote in light of the Electoral College in order to actually win the White House is not particularly Bartels' targeted, but does help to explain how a party with a comparatively limited electoral appeal, the Republicans, manages to have quite a lot of Republican presidents. This particular bias from the Electoral College and generally the overrepresentation of small, aging, predominantly white rural states has been an increasing problem in the 21st century. It's not as much of a problem in the late 20th century where Bartels gets a lot of his data. There were a lot of Democrats elected from places like the Dakotas at the time. So let's go back to the basic question of Bartels which is he demonstrates to his satisfaction that fewer than 1% of Americans have higher household income growth, on average, under a Republican president. Therefore, you might naively conclude, Democrats will win all the time until Republicans come up with a set of policies and a message that doesn't involve, vote for us, you'll have less money. Well, there's a couple of hypotheses about what the voters are thinking. And remember, we've put aside electoral rules that mean that the voters can think Democratic in a majority and still not get a Democratic president. One is that voters aren't motivated by economics. This is a common thing, whether you're reading political punditry or you're talking to actual human beings. Sometimes they're motivated by issues of identity or ideology that aren't specifically economic. They're motivated by their attitude towards abortion. They're motivated by their attitude towards policy in Cuba. They're motivated by their attitude towards the police. Or more broadly, there's categories of things that we think motivate people. Religion motivates people. Race motivates people of all races. So one theory which Bartels doesn't particularly address, is that the explanation for why half the public voting public regularly votes Republican is something that they're willing to trade off against lower household income growth. W.E. Du Bois called this the wages of whiteness, that there are psychological advantages to preserving white rule for white people, even if it's at the expense of their own short-term economic interests. And there's a bunch of similar theories explaining why people don't vote in the way that you think they ought to based on economic welfare. Why does Bartels not pay too much attention to this? He would say, because the proof's in the pudding. He can explain what he cares about, which is the outcome of presidential vote, without 
all of those, what he would say, control factors, such as the race of the voters or the attitudes on racial issues of the voters or the religion of the voters and so forth. And he does a lot of work with these controls, and he would say that they're just not powerful enough. So that's the grounds on which he would care to respond if you were to challenge him on that. Where he goes to explain why half the voting public regularly votes Republican despite the lower household income earnings finding which he is satisfied with is he would say that it's because voters love to vote their own self-interest. Voters want more money, better standard of living, but they're not very good at it. And this is the core of his argument. It's that basically voters are myopic. Voters are motivated by household income, but they don't understand their own household income. This breaks down into two points, which he spends a lot of the book trying to demonstrate. The first is that voters actually don't remember what they made four years ago. This stands to reason. Do you remember what your income was four years ago? Brackets, this is a poor question to ask in university setting because a lot of the time I'm asking you what your income was when you were a work-study student or something. But most people can't actually name their household income for four years ago. They'd hem and they'd haw, and if you really push them, they'd have to go find their tax returns or something. Therefore, what people remember, recency bias, we all know about this, is recent events, and that's approximately the last six months. So it's quite easy for voters to tell you pretty accurately if their income has gone up or down or steady in the last six months. I felt confident enough to buy something. I didn't feel confident enough to buy something. That's point one. Recency bias is part of voter myopia because it means that voters don't grade you on your whole four years. They grade you on effectively the second and third quarter change in household income in the election year. So Donald Trump could do anything he wanted from 2016 until the end of the first quarter of 2020. Q2 and Q3, household income decides his fate. The second point is that voters' myopia extends to the fact that not only can they not remember how they were doing nine months ago, let alone four years ago, they also can't figure out how their percentile, their decile's income has actually changed. Instead, and there's some clever statistical methods to come up with this answer, he says that voters' understanding of the economy is kind of a hodgepodge of two things, a blend of how their own personal income is doing, yeah, their estimate of how their percentile, their decile of the economy is doing, and their understanding of how rich people are doing, the top decile. So in other words, your evaluation of the economy, if you are the most common kind of voter according to Bartels, is kind of an average of how you've done over the last six months and how really rich people have done over the last six months. So you might be down in the 15th percentile or the 20th percentile of the income distribution and have seen flat income for four years. But if things are really going gangbusters among rich people, you might conclude, without necessarily thinking about it too hard, that the economy is actually going well and you must be better off, or that you should vote to support the party in power because eventually it'll trickle down to you. Again, Bartels would say that this is built on good psychology because we know far more about the putative lives of rich people than we do of people like us. And we certainly know more about rich people and people like us than people who are sort of one or two deciles away, right? If you're in the 50th percentile, you probably don't know that much about life in the 15th percentile, and you probably don't know much about life in the 80th percentile. So those are the two forms of myopia that matter. Basically, if you make sure 
that household income across the economy is going up in the second and third quarter of a presidential election year, and you give a little extra boost to the incomes of the top 10% of the population, you're in good shape, regardless of the mess you've made in the previous three and a quarter years. How do you turn this into a political strategy? Well, again, you can do non-economic things if you think that motivates voters, but Bartels kind of says it doesn't matter enough that political elites might go on endlessly as if people were significantly motivated by, for example, immigration or Cuba, but he says it kind of washes out and what matters is income. His answer is you time policy to map onto elections. And what he shows is that Republicans over and over again get into office and immediately engineer a recession. So what you should expect in the first year or two of a Republican presidency is a recession, is slower growth in household income or no growth, decline in household income, followed by intense action to goose income in the last year of the presidency. And he's drawing on data from before he wrote his book. So he can show Republicans doing this pretty systematically across presidency since Eisenhower. And it makes a lot of sense, right? If you're thinking pragmatically, you would want to make sure that the economy was growing precisely at the moment when your re-election was on the table, even if you believe that doing things that did not lead to economic growth were valuable otherwise, such as austerity or not giving money to poor people or whatever. The corollary, therefore, is that everything reverses for Republicans when there's a Democratic president, which is you want to make sure that whatever else, the economy won't be that good when the Democratic president is up for re-election. So um, that means that one of the key jobs for Republicans was to make sure that Obama would not have a good economy in 2012 and in 2016. It gets a little hairier if you think that your party is going to lose, right? So in 2008, one of the debates among the Republicans was do we try to save the economy from the world financial meltdown in order to enhance the odds of John McCain getting elected? Or do we figure that John McCain is toast and not save the economy in order to give Obama the biggest set of problems possible? Likewise, part of the debate in 2020 was some Republicans thought that Trump could be saved and you should vote very large stimulus packages against the pandemic. And some thought that Trump was a goner. This view became more common toward the end of the election. And therefore, you should try to give Joe Biden a really, really big problem by not passing any stimulus. And that explains a lot of the toing and froing over stimulus in the autumn of 2020. So if you are a Republican and you don't plan to change the policies which deliver, according to Bartels, lower household income growth for your entire presidency, you at least want to make sure of two things. One is that you deliver lots of household income growth in six months of an election year and make sure Democrats can't do that. So why don't Democrats do this? They're still starting with a built-in advantage, which is they want to increase people's household income growth. And even if you say that's going to cause inflation or that's going to lead to social turmoil or whatever, right? Even if you argue that household income growth isn't the be-all and end-all of policy, which you can do from right-wing perspectives, left-wing perspectives, ecological perspectives, it certainly matters to voters. So why don't Dems do the same thing? Because Dems, Bartels find, have a very significantly different approach. They go in and they produce most of that household income growth in the first couple of years of a presidency. So if you get elected in 2008, 
2009, the Democrats take a huge range of actions to improve the economy and household income growth, and it shows off in 10 and 11. Same token, Dems get in in 2021. They legislate enormous amounts of money on all sorts of different things. They improve the economy, and it's starting to dissipate toward the end of the presidency, we would predict, around 24. Why do they do this? Well, this is partly changing as the parties become stronger and more coherent ideological creatures. But basically, the Republicans are the party of ideological conservatism. They tend to have many fewer policy objectives. If you ask voters what matters in policy, what issue areas matter, Republican voters will simply give you a shorter list, usually involving something about regulation, something about immigration, something about security. Democrats will give you a long list about climate change and the police and racism and urban policy and transportation and all sorts of things, right? That reflects the fact that the Republicans are the party of ideological conservatism, basically a coalition of people who believe in a certain very specific kind of government and not a lot of specific policy change demands. And Democrats are a large coalition of people who have all sorts of different demands for changing policy. Everything from changing policy toward the homeless to changing policy towards the planet. So Democrats' way of thinking, and this is absolutely classically taking place under Biden, is make the biggest policy you can, talk about the policy, and try to win on that. So do a lot of big things while you have the majority, because the majority to do big things doesn't come along very often, and hope that voters reward you for that. And at a minimum, you've made the policies, and the Republicans, despite much effort and a lot of debate about this, aren't that good at reversing democratic policies, right? So it's mostly a ratchet effect. It's very hard to erode policies that voters like, as the Trump administration, among others, proved with their inability to get rid of a lot of things, including the ACA. So Democrats, over and over again, walk into this pattern where a Democratic president gets elected, they go big, they make a lot of policy in the first year, they really goose household income growth, and then the effect starts to taper off, things start to go wrong, whatever economic variables you like, and they don't have particularly impressive household income growth in the last couple of quarters of the election year, which creates the odds that they lose the election and Republicans get back in and engineer a recession, which will then be dealt with three years later in order to reelect the Republican. If, as is quite common, the incumbent Democrat loses the midterm elections, then they increasingly likely have a Congress with Republicans who will refuse to do anything in the hopes of having a poor economy, which will then lead to a Republican victory in the next presidential election. That was exactly the playbook that uh, Republicans ran on Obama in 2010, after the 2010 election. Democrats are not quite the same way as you saw in 2020, where they passed all sorts of things that objectively helped household income growth and helped Donald Trump because they contained things Democrats wanted to do anyway, such as paid household leave and public health response funding and so forth. So it's not symmetrical. Republicans are less likely to want new spending items because that's practically the definition of Republicans is they don't want to vote for a lot of new spending items in social policy. So they have less trouble blocking it, whereas Democrats are much more willing to vote for some kind of a social policy issue such as, say, expanding health care, even if doing so helps a Republican president. So Democrats are policy motivated, and when they get a coalition together that can do things, they tend to think their incentive is to do things, go big, 
even if it's quite likely that the benefits of that are going to be ill-timed. They might or might not save your votes in the midterm elections, and they'll probably be long forgotten by the myopic voters by the time the next presidential election comes along. Now, I said Bartels was highly influential. I think everybody in the Obama administration read or pretended to read, have read this book. So one of the things about the Obama administration, which had a great affection for clever economic theory that the Biden administration does not share, is that they actually tried to game Bartels. This is the problem with being a social sciences, the scientist is the self-fulfilling prophecy. Ideally, Bartels should have written his book and then like freeze-dried himself so that he could come out and update it with new data from another 20 or 30 presidents, get statistical significance, and then publish in 2100 or something. Instead, he published, and the Dems said, aha, this is our problem. So if you go through the weeds of a lot of Obama-era policies, a lot of them were designed precisely to actually have benefits that kicked in in 2014, 2015, 2016. And one of the reasons that the presidential election was so close and that Trump thumpingly lost the popular vote was precisely that the Democrats had sort of read that and they said, let's do clever policies that raise household income growth, even if we don't get credit for them. And that are timed in order to produce benefits on a schedule that will benefit Obama and Hillary Clinton in their election campaigns. And you could say it worked, right? You can say most things Democrats worked because they did win the popular vote in the 2016 election. But going back to the political institutions, winning the popular vote does not mean that you win the presidency uh, given the current state of politics in the U.S. So I thought... This book is ruined, and the second edition was indeed pretty weak. Because what do you do when Democrats have learned the lesson that they shouldn't do what you said Democrats do? The Biden administration has reverted to the early political logic. At least you can get a lot of things done. Because from the Biden administration's point of view, Obama and his clever theories of Congress and his clever theories of the electorate and his clever theories of the economy left a lot of policy achievement on the table left a lot of opportunities to make people's life better on the table, didn't try the hypothesis that you should just do good things and get credit for them. And therefore, you should do good things, get credit for them, and at a minimum, you'll have done them. Maybe the voters will remember in 2024, and otherwise you think of something else to do in 2023. Donald Trump, by the way, in a sense, knew this intuitively, which is he didn't start with an engineered recession but one of the hallmarks of the Trump presidency, and something we might not go back to, is the extent to which he made the Federal Reserve's politics overt. He made it clear, something that everybody knows if you follow political economy, which is that the Federal Reserve determines interest rates, determines things like mortgages and therefore house construction and people's feeling of wealth, and therefore much of the economy. And he absolutely broke, being Donald Trump, he absolutely broke with the sensibilities, the refined sensibilities of the Washington Post editorial page or whatever, made it clear that he thought the point of the Federal Reserve was to produce an economy that was good for Donald Trump. The result, though, is that we now have a Federal Reserve, which actually seems to be much more committed to growth at all costs and much less interested in chasing the demons of inflation from the 1970s. This is probably all to the better in terms of increasing the household income growth of Americans under any president of any color. So that's Bartels. Really important and influential. Takeaway, first of all, if you want to uh, put it this way, here are the things that are the big takeaways, and if you want to argue with them, these are the places to focus. One, fewer than 1% of Americans are likely to have higher household income growth under a Republican president. Two, 
So why do Republicans get votes at all or not change policy so that they deliver better household income growth? Because voters are myopic. They're myopic 2A because they can't think more than six months back. Look unto yourself. Can you tell me what you were wearing fashion-wise four years ago or what you were driving? And 2B because their media consumption and their sense of the world means that they understand their own brackets income and trajectory plus that of rich people, which means they end up absorbing the welfare of rich people as if it were their own welfare. Republicans game this partly because they don't have such a long and elaborate and expensive list of policy objectives and usually create a recession in the first year of a Republican presidency, which then comes bouncing roaringly back, starting with the stock market and heading into household income growth right up in time for the election. Democrats don't do that. They tend to go big, try to get a lot of things done while they have the coalition to do it because they know the coalition will evaporate one way or another. And this means that they just accept the risk, which is a high risk, that the stimulus they've carried out in you know, 2009 or 2021 will have evaporated and not give them the benefit of the enormous activity that they engaged in for the whole presidency. So... This explains, for Bartels, how it is that you could regularly have half the population voting for, and under our electoral systems, less than half the population can elect the president, somebody who actually is going to deliver less of what he thinks voters care about most, which is household income growth. If you want to argue with him, you can argue on the grounds of small n, but be careful. This guy did not become a professor of political methodology by being bad at methods. So be careful because the simple questions he's anticipated and dealt with. And the other is, is it really true empirically that voters are sufficiently motivated by household income growth that you can argue that that's what's doing it and not, for example, racial resentment? So anyway, that's Bartels. Uh, uncannily good analysis of American politics. And it's one where if you are watching the Biden administration, you might say that they it's like they read Bartels and decided that the democratic package he describes is better than the one Obama tried, which was based on having red Bartels. So this has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast on Larry Bartels, myopic voters, and partisan effects of the presidency. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMPGovLab. <laughs>